following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people, and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer, and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's, directions, or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. This morning's reading is taken from the second book of Samuel, chapter 11, beginning to read at verse 2, but it's to be found on page 314, page 314, and there I shall be reading verses 2 to 5, and then verses 14 to 27. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace, From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, She is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it he wrote, Put Uriah out in the front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, Why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobesheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, She mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. 
This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. May I speak to the glory of God the Father, and in the name of Jesus the Son, and through the power of God's Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Can I add my welcome to that of Aaron earlier in the service? Um, This morning, I would like to talk about a story of royal intrigue, a story of status and privilege exerted over those in less fortunate positions, a story of cover-ups by powerful people. I am, of course, talking about the recent film of Downton Abbey. Um, Has anyone seen it? Anyone admit to seeing it? Hey, yes, there are a few who've seen it. Aaron, I have to say, came with me to see it, I think under some sufferance, I have to say. But he was persuaded by the thought of those uh, recliner seats at the new Odeon in town. Any of you experienced those, even if it wasn't for Downton Abbey, that they're great. Um, And I'm pretty certain that Aaron may have slept through most of the film. Um, But anyway, for those of you who haven't seen the film, um, and that clearly includes Aaron, I won't spoil it for you. Let's move on instead to a much older story of royal intrigue and cover-up. Let's move on to the passage we've just heard read about King David. In fact, to call it a story of intrigue and cover-up really doesn't do it justice. Because this is a deeply shocking story of lust, of abuse of power, and of murder. And yet, we find it in the Bible and in the life of the greatest Old Testament king. And I'm going to come back to that at the end, because its very presence in our Bible sounds notes both of warning and also of hope for us. So let's turn to this story now. Um, It's on page 314 of the Pew Bibles, um, and I'd like to look at it in some detail. So I'm going to look at the whole passage, okay, from verse 2, chapter 11, verse 2, right the way through to verse 27. And as we look at it, as we look at the whole passage, I'd like to concentrate on three characters. Two feature in this story, and the third does not. So the first of the characters, who is very much in the story, is King David himself. And we meet King David in verse 2, walking on the roof of his palace. Now, the word roof is repeated in that verse, is repeated in verse 2, emphasizing David's position. He's in a position high up, a vantage point from which he can see Jerusalem below him. And the positioning of characters in this story is important because it gives added poignancy to their actions. David's position on the roof mirrors his position as king. He is high above everyone else in terms of the power that he holds. And how does he now use this position and this power? 
Well, from his exalted vantage point, he spots what he wants and he takes it. It is, of course, Bathsheba, a person, a human being. Yet we know very little about her from this. It seems that she is simply the object of David's desire. And the lack of detail in this story seems to underline how David treats her. She is an object. Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah, but she becomes pregnant by David. And so David's great cover-up begins. David sends for Uriah, and in verse 8, if you'd like to look at verse 8 for a moment, he says, David says to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Now, we might miss the significance of this today, but when David says, wash your feet, what he really means is, sleep with your wife. There's more subterfuge here than on EastEnders. There's more cunning here than in House of Cards. David is trying to make it look like the baby could be Uriah's. So let's look at Uriah now for a moment, because Uriah is the second character I'd like to focus on this morning. He also is very much in this story. And although David urges him, go sleep with your wife, Uriah does not go home. Instead, he sleeps at the entrance to the palace with David's servants. Now, I said earlier that the positions that characters take in this account are important. Uriah takes a position among the servants. He's not on the roof of the palace. He's not even inside the palace. He is at the palace's entrance. In contrast to David, Uriah is not in a position of significant power. But he still has the power of personal choice about where to sleep. And he decides that while his fellow soldiers and the Ark of the Lord are intense in a field, he cannot in all conscience take the special privileges that David is offering to him. And throughout this passage, Uriah's integrity highlights David's flaws. Uriah's ethical choices highlight David's unethical ones. And the contrast becomes even more pronounced when we remember that Uriah is a Hittite. He's not an Israelite. And you might expect that in the Old Testament, it would be the Israelites, the people of God, who set the example. But here is a foreigner, and he is the one who behaves with integrity. No matter how hard David tries, he cannot corrupt Uriah. Even when he gets Uriah drunk, Uriah still sleeps, or still decides to sleep with the servants and not go home. So what does David then do? 
he decides to kill him. And in verse 14, we find David writing the order that condemns Uriah to death. He writes to Joab, the commander of the army, and he tells him to put Uriah into the worst part of the battle so that he will be killed. And he gives this order, this letter, to Uriah himself to deliver. Uriah does what he's asked to do. He delivers the letter and he's sent into the midst of the fighting and he is killed. Now you might think that this would all stop there. But now there's even more covering up to be done. Uriah is dead in battle and Joab, David's battle commander, seems to suspect that the blame could end up with him. He could be blamed for sending men too close to the city walls. So he instructs his messenger that if King David starts asking any awkward questions, the messenger should simply tell him that Uriah is dead. It's a coded message. Don't blame me. I've done what you asked me to do. I've had Uriah killed. And the coded message works, and David sends another piece of code back again. In verse 25, he sends the message back to Joab, don't let this upset you. In other words, I won't blame you, Joab. So we have our story of two people, of David who sinks deeper and deeper into corruption, and Uriah, who refuses to do anything wrong and becomes the victim not only of adultery, but of murder. So what about the third character? The character who is not in our story this morning. Can anyone perhaps suggest who I'm thinking of, who we might expect to be here, but is not here? God, wonderful, thank you very much, absolutely. God has been cut out of these events. He isn't even mentioned by David. David doesn't pray to God in this passage. David doesn't listen to God in this passage. He doesn't even refer to God. The person who does refer to God, and specifically to the ark of God in verse 11 is Uriah. In contrast to David, Uriah, the man of integrity, still has an awareness of God and of God's presence. And just look at the very end of our passage this morning, at the very end of verse 27. There are nine words there that confirm Uriah's perception. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. David cannot cut God out. He cannot cover over what he's done. God is there whether David likes it or not. Earlier I said that this is a story about the abuse of power. David abused the position of power that he had and he thought he could cover it up. 
And one of the things that power can do is to make us think that we can get away with anything, that we're too important to be questioned, that we're too successful to lose. Um, You may have heard the expression, all power tends to corrupt, but absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that. Um, You may know that it was said by Lord Acton about 150 years ago. And I find that interesting because Lord Acton was a prominent Roman Catholic, a man whose faith was clearly very important to him. And at the time, he was arguing against the doctrine of papal infallibility. So the doctrine that the Pope could never be wrong. And Lord Acton said, there is no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. Power carries with it the risks of corruption. And where power cannot be challenged, neither can corruption. But there are no cover-ups before God. As our passage finishes, David is about to find this out. He's about to find out that the God who has given him power is about to make him account for it. Now, I mentioned earlier that this story can sound both notes of warning and also of hope for us. And from King David, from the first character in the story, there is a warning that ultimately there can be no cover-ups before God. And the story makes us ask, what is it that we hide from other people? perhaps even from ourselves. It makes us ask ourselves about the things we have done that we were perhaps most ashamed of having done. The betrayals of other people, the betrayals of other people's trust in us. It makes us ask ourselves about the ways in which we may try to keep those things separate from our faith and away from the eyes of God. But the burden of those things might be lifted when we deliberately uncover them, when we make the choice to bring them into the light of God's presence. We might start by admitting them to God and to ourselves in prayer. And if more than that is needed we might ask for one of the particular forms of individual confession that the church offers. And if here this morning we find ourselves conscious of things that we've said or done of which we are deeply ashamed, then this story also offers hope. Because here we see crimes and corruption that are truly shocking the murder of someone who trusted David, a life thrown away to cover up adultery. This is about as bad as you can get. And so where's the hope? Well, if God can offer a way forward to David, he can offer a way forward for us too. 
And for us, God has done exactly that in and through David's descendant, Jesus. But perhaps this morning we may find ourselves identifying more with the second character in this story, with Uriah. Perhaps we have been betrayed by someone we thought of as a friend. Perhaps we've been betrayed by someone with a load more power than we have. And if that's the case, then from this passage, we can know that there is or will be justice. Next week, we'll hear more about the consequences of all of this for David, and they are severe. Yes, there is a way forward for David, but he does not escape the consequences of what he's done. Justice is done because God not only sees what has happened, he is displeased with it and he acts. Now Uriah himself does not witness the results of God's justice and we too may not witness particular results. But from this passage, we can know that God has seen. And that's been the conviction of centuries of Christian martyrs. Like Uriah, they did not see the results of God's justice, but they were prepared to give their lives because they knew that justice would in the end be done, not by them, but by God. This week in the church's calendar, we've celebrated the anniversaries of several Christian martyrs, Ignatius of Antioch, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer. They spread from the second century to the 16th century. And in the next few weeks, we will be thinking of many more who've died in the absolute conviction that God will ultimately bring justice, though they do not see it in this life. They died convinced that above and beyond all that we see and know here, there is the God who created the universe, who notices injustice and suffering and promises to end it. As Moses faced his own death, he said these words, recorded in Deuteronomy and spoken as a blessing. There is no one like the God of Jeshurun who rides on the heavens to help you and on the clouds in his majesty. The eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you'd like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.